Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Wasn't that an incredible time of worship we just had? You know, I, I, I was here last night. Yeah. <clears throat> last night I was here for the service, and I'm sitting down front here, and I'm just thinking, wow, I didn't think it could get any better than last night, and yet it has. It's just really awesome. Uh, so glad for Eric and his leadership and our amazing band that serves us every week. We're in this series called Uncontained. And this is about life without limits. If you weren't here last week, you can know you can always go online. We have our own YouTube channel called Real Spring Creek Church. You can check it out there. Uh, you can also go, if you're a Facebook, uh, if you're a fan of us on Facebook, if you've liked the church, you can go to our church Facebook page and you can watch any of the three services. In fact, there are people right now joining us that can't be here this weekend. Some of our folks are traveling, some even go on vacation, but they still tune into the weekend service. So we're glad that you're with us joining us today on Facebook live stream. And then if you don't have either of those technologies, there's always CDs and DVDs of the message available. Today's message I'm calling Keep in Step with the Spirit. We're going to talk about the relationship between faith and fear. As we get started, let's just pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this time we've already enjoyed. We know you're here. You're here in a powerful way. And because you're here, you're here for us. You're here, God, in order that we might interface with you, connect with you in our hearts and minds. There are things that in our life today, they need to be challenged. There are things in our life today where we need to be encouraged. There are times, God, when we just need direction. And I just pray that in all those ways and more, you will meet with us now and show us our next right step. In Jesus' name, amen. So 29 years ago, myself, along with 25 others, adults and kids, started Spring Creek Church. It was September 1990. Now, these 25 folks, adults and kids, had been a part of a church that I pastored in South Garland on Kingsley Road, and uh, we sold that building. I was there for four and a half years. We voted unanimously to sell the property. When we sold it, we cleared $190,000, and that was the money, the seed money, to start Spring Creek Church. Now, during the two years we started, we were out at Naaman Forest High School. And in that two years' time, because we weren't quite meeting our budget, between paying for the facility and advertising and staff, we burned through about half of that money. At the end of two years, the high school said, your time's up here, you need to find another place. So we started looking around, and we found a strip mall Many of you are familiar with that place. Some of you were attending back then. It's over on North Garland Road across from Winters Park, Webb Elementary and Spring Creek, or Webb Middle School and Spring Creek Elementary School. And we were in that facility for eight years. And by the way, it took the rest of our money just to finish that out. So we had to be self-supporting by then. There was no extra money anywhere in order for the church to continue. So the church began to be blessed, began to grow. Amazing things were happening. We were in that facility for eight years, but I can tell you we quickly outgrew. We had 15,000 square feet. Now, to put that in perspective, the old church building where I pastored in South Garland was 15,000 square feet, and we had 75 people in 15,000 square feet. Over on North Garland Road, we had over 1,000 people in 1,500 square feet. I mean, it was 15,000 square feet. It was just way too crowded. We were in four services just to make everything happen. Well, that's when we heard about the Food Lion Grocery Store, which is the building right behind us, which is the first building we ever bought and owned on our own. We found out that it was available largely because Food Lion got in trouble in Texas. Do you remember this story? ABC News covered it. They started washing their meat in bleach and putting it back out for consumers. And you just don't mess with beef in Texas. So 
Food Lion did not have a long life here, and all their buildings closed, and now their libraries and all kinds of buildings. But what was unique about this property is there was four acres undeveloped, which is now all parking for us. And most grocery stores don't have that. You need more than a grocery parking lot to fit all the people who come to your church. So we bought all that. Now, the property itself, without any improvements, was $2.5 million. The improvements to it would be another $1.5 million. And I just got to tell you, that number scared me to death. It really did. It scared me to death because $190,000 was an incredible amount of money to me. I mean, I just couldn't even imagine what would it take to raise $4 million to get into this facility. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell you, we, we, bought the, we bought the property. That was $2.5 million. And I thought we leveraged all the money we had. And we still had to come up with $1.5 million. And I had the keys to the property, so I come into the old grocery store, and I'm walking around, and I'm praying, and I'm scared, and I'm desperate. And I kid you not, I mean, I was just petrified, and I'm walking around in the building, and I'm just praying, God, what have I done? I mean, what, what did I get the church into? We're never going to be able to afford this. How can I raise another $1.5 million? We'll never be able to afford this building. And all this naysaying was going on in my mind. I know I'm really inspiring you right now, but that's, that's, that's where I was at. And I can remember in the old grocery store, I was walking through the old frozen food section when I heard God say to me as clearly as he ever has anything, just match my pace. Just match my pace. And you know what? That was everything I needed for the fear to evaporate and for my faith to soar because I knew what God was saying. Don't lag behind what I'm doing. Don't get out ahead of me because I'm not out there either. You stay in lockstep with me, and everything's going to be fine. And that's been my watchword for the last 19 years since we've been in this property. I want to match God's pace. I want to stay in sync with what God is doing and how he is leading. You know, we just finished a series on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit occurs like 59 times in the book of Acts. But of those 59 times, 36 of those times the Holy Spirit is speaking. Because God is a God who's not silent. God is a God who speaks to his children. God is a God who leads his children. I'm reminded of something that Francis Chan once said. He said, we all have to answer the question, do I want to lead or be led by the Spirit? Now, this is a decision I made a long time ago. I want to be led. So my day begins, Holy Spirit, lead my leadership. Lead my leadership. Point me in the right direction. Show me which direction to go. Show me how you want me to walk, and I'll walk in sync with you because as long as I'm matching pace with God, I'm in a place where he can bless and he can use me. Amen? And that's true for you too. Now what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a story that reminds me of that episode and many episodes since then of the faith that we feel, but at the same time the fears that are very real that we all experience. But to do that, I need to begin with another story. I call this the failure of a miracle. So this is the story that leads into the story I want to tell you today. And it's in John 6, 10 to 11. They sat down, about 5,000 of them. Then Jesus took the bread and having given thanks, gave it to those who were seated. He did the same thing with the fish. All ate as much as they wanted. Now, this story is commonly referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of the only miracles that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. All four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, thought this was noteworthy that they should record this story. So Jesus, for the record, he takes five loaves and two fish. 
And after thanking God for it, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to the disciples, who in turn distribute it to the 5,000 men plus women and children. So the crowd was probably around 10 or 15,000 people. They distribute all of this food. Everybody eats to their fill. And Matthew tells us there's 12 baskets of leftovers. But if you read this story, and I don't really care which account you read, but if you read this story, you'd see that in a sense, the feeding of the 5,000 was a failure. Not the miracle itself, but the message in the miracle got lost. Because what Jesus wanted the crowd to understand, what Jesus wanted his disciples to see, they didn't get it. So, of course, everyone's excited. I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, they'd never seen anything like this before. And even some of them said, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. In fact, they're so blown away by this miracle that John tells us that the people were ready to seize Jesus and make him king by force. You see, they wanted a powerful political Messiah, powerful enough to drive the Romans out of Palestine. And Jesus just demonstrated power, miraculous power. That's the kind of power that could serve their purposes. But it reminds me of an important question, and that is this. Why did Christ do miracles? Now, the reason Jesus did miracles is not so that people would ooh and ah and say, well, wow, look at how, what amazing power this individual has. It wasn't so that they could see what he could do. It's so that they could see who he is. That's the purpose of the miracles. The miracles were intended to help people see God in Jesus. Listen to John explain it. Jesus provided far more God-revealing signs than are written down in this book. These are written down so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So the message, that message, who Jesus really is, that message got lost in the feeding of the 5,000. Or as I say in my next point, they just didn't get it. Now this is how Jesus summarized the reaction of the crowd that day. In John 6, 26, Jesus answered, you've come looking for me not because you saw God in my actions, but because I fed you, filled your stomachs, and for free. You see, Jesus knew the hearts and minds of all those who were gathered that day. So he sends his disciples away and he disperses the crowd. In fact, look at this verse, Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. But he dismissed the crowd. Now, Matthew says Jesus made the disciples do this. That word made in the original language is a really strong word. It really means forced or compelled. Why is that? Why is Jesus having to force his disciples to leave the scene, get in a boat, and go to the other side of the lake? Why is he having to make them do that? Well, I think the most likely explanation is because they're a part of the problem. You see, it wasn't just the crowd that day that wanted to seize Jesus and make him king by force. Most likely, the disciples themselves were the ringleaders of that. They were all for that. Yeah, this is the moment. Look at this power that Jesus has. So Jesus has to make them leave. Everyone is enamored with Jesus' power because everyone is selfishly thinking how that power can serve their purposes. But none of them see what matters most, that only God can supernaturally multiply bread. And that's where this next story, the story I really want to tell you, comes in. The disciples, they get a second chance. So Jesus wants his disciples to see who he really is. And he's going to get an opportunity to do that that very night. In fact, this next point says, Jesus waits for a teachable moment. And here's that moment. Matthew 14, 24. Night fell, and out on the lake the disciples were in trouble. For the wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy seas. You see, Jesus sent his disciples away that night. They didn't realize it then but they had an appointment with a storm. 
Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Old Testament's originally written in Hebrew, and Hebrew is not a very expressive language. And as a result, they often call, uh, they have language that almost exaggerates. Like, for example, the Sea of Galilee is not really a sea in that sense of the word. The Sea of Galilee is more like a giant lock or lake. It's like 11 miles long and 7 miles wide. Usually it's a calm body of water. But to the north there's a mountain range, actually two. And sometimes that mountain range will kind of catch and funnel wind at great velocity toward the Sea of Galilee. And when that happens, a storm can kick up in a minute. And evidently this night it was a pretty violent storm. So violent that several of the disciples who were experienced fishermen who knew these waters well were fighting for their lives. You know, sometimes I believe God will allow us to get to the end of our resources in order to get our attention. Sometimes, as long as we have a shred of confidence in our own strength and ability, we will cling to that shred rather than turn to God. And so now they're at, the, they're, they're at their limits. They've reached the end of their abilities and resources and Mark and John are both going to give us insight into what Jesus is trying to do because Jesus is about to reveal himself as God. So Mark 6:48, about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Now that phrase, to pass by them, has often been misunderstood. People get this idea that, you know, the disciples are fighting for their life. Jesus is walking on water and it's like, hey guys, see you're having trouble, see ya. You know, but, but that's... That's not really the idea at all. In fact, the best way to understand this is to pass by is a Jewish idiom. It's it's an expression. It's It's a phrase that's used in the scripture when God wants to reveal himself to his people. And I gave you a couple of references in your notes. One is Exodus 33. The other is 1 Kings 19. Both of these references are about a time when God passed by. So the first one in Exodus is when Moses... Is, is, is told by God that he's going to reveal to him the, the hinder parts of his glory. And God takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock. And the Bible says God passes by. Same thing happens with Elijah on the mountaintop. God is going to reveal himself to Elijah and God passes by. This idea is that God is about to pass by. Mark is wanting us to remember these incidents. Jesus is revealing something of his God nature to the disciples. He's showing them what they didn't understand in the miracle of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, remember, this is really important. Remember what the Bible says in Job 9.8. God alone treads on the waves of the sea. So Jesus feels like it's high time that his followers really understand who he is. And then John adds one more detail just so that you understand. I'm not reading more into the text than what is there. What John adds is this. Jesus on the storm looks to his disciples and says, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, that's an unfortunate translation because that's not literally what the Greek language says. Literally, what the Greek language says is this phrase, ego I me, which is emphatic, which is I am. What Jesus said is not it is I. He said, I am be not afraid. I am, be not afraid. Does that phrase stand out to you at all? What ought to? Go back again to your Old Testament. Remember Moses' first encounter with God at the burning bush. And God sends him on a mission to set the children of Israel free from Egyptian bondage. And Moses says, you know, it's probably a good idea if I know who you are, God. What's your name? And God says, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And now Jesus, standing out on the water, looks to the disciples, and he says, I am, be not afraid. 
By the way, in the Gospel of John, John uses this naked I am, this emphatic I am several times. And every time that Jesus uses that expression, there's an unusual reaction to it. One time Jesus says, I am, to a group of Jewish followers. You know what they do? They pick up stones to kill him. Why? Because they understand what he's saying. He's just made himself equivalent to God. And a mere man who made himself to be God should be stoned for blasphemy. In the Garden of Gethsemane, John records that when the, the soldiers are looking for Jesus, he doesn't say, it's I. He says, I am. And do you remember what the Bible says? The soldiers fall on their face as if dead. They fall on their face because that's the only experience you can have in the presence of deity. You fall on your face in worship of God. So Jesus tells his disciples, I am. I am. Be not afraid. So when the disciples, what they didn't understand in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is making perfectly clear now. So what I want to do is dig a little deeper into this story. I call this next point a failure or great faith. So let's read the story in its entirety and talk about it. At about 4 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. They were scared out of their wits. A ghost, they cried, or they said, crying out in terror. But Jesus was quick to comfort them. Courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Peter suddenly boldly said, Master, if it's really you, come, call to me to come to you on the water. And he said, come ahead. Jumping out of the boat, Peter walked on the water to Jesus. But when he looked down at the waves churning beneath his feet, he lost his nerves and he started to sink. He cried, Master, save me. Jesus didn't hesitate. He reached down and grabbed his hand. Then he said, faint heart, what got into you? The two of them climbed into the boat and the wind died down. The disciples in the boat, having watched the whole thing, worshiped Jesus saying, this is it. You are God's son for sure. Now, I've been a preacher for more than 40 years now. And practically every time I've ever heard a preacher preach this sermon, they chide Peter. Peter, I think, gets a bad rap. They say, well, you know, he just lacked faith. But I think that Peter gets scapegoated in this story. Peter did a lot of things wrong, no question. He failed, and he failed big times, many times, but he often failed out of his love and his courage and his faith as much as he did out of his brashness and cowardice. I mean, we know the story that Peter denied Christ three times, but you do know of all the disciples, he was the only one in the courtyard as close as he could possibly get to Jesus when he failed. I mean, he failed in trying to follow Jesus. He wasn't being a coward. He wasn't running away. Peter, someone who failed, leaning into Jesus, that's what he does. Now, Peter, he does get out of the boat, but I want you to imagine this. I want you to try to get in his shoes for a minute. It's the middle of the night, the size of the waves, the strength of the wind, the darkness of the night. Imagine how cold and wet and exhausted and scared Peter is. I don't know about you, but I, I'd have enough problem getting out of a perfectly good boat on a calm day on the water, let alone when there's gale force winds and the waves are white capping all around me. I mean, Peter, he gets out of the boat. He sinks, that's for sure. He didn't make it. He failed. Or did he? You know, the text says that he actually took a few steps on the water before he failed. And I got to tell you this, this makes Peter the first mortal man in history to ever walk on water. This experience radically redefines failure for me. Failure is not so much an event. It's how we define an event. It's the label we put on it. Reminds me of the true story of Jonas Salk. You know, Jonas Salk was the inventor of the vaccine for polio. He tried a 200 different serums before he got to the successful one. And a reporter once asked him, how does it feel to fail 200 times trying to invent a vaccine for polio? I love his response. He said, I never failed 200 times at anything in my life. My family taught me never to use that word. I simply discovered 200 ways how not to make a vaccine for polio. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
You know, Winston Churchill was once asked, what qualified you, what equipped you to lead the British Empire through World War II? And he said, it was the time I, that I had to repeat a class in grade school. And the reporter said, you flunked? And Churchill said, I never flunked. I was simply given a second opportunity to give it right. So, so did Peter fail? Well, yeah, in a sense he did. Once he shifted his focus from Jesus to the storm, he failed. But is that really failure? Peter showed great faith in getting out of that boat to go to Jesus. The reason he sank is not because he was wrong to get out of the boat. The reason he sank is because his faith wavered. But the greatest failures that night are the failures we don't talk about. And that's the real failures I want to talk to you about now. Those who stayed in the boat, they failed privately. They failed quietly. They failed with no one noticing and no one criticizing. Peter's experience was a public failure. But only Peter knew the glory of walking on the water. And only Peter knew in a way the other disciples didn't that Jesus would always be for them no matter what happened in his life. Peter shared a connection with Christ that the others missed out on. They missed out because they never got out of the boat. I love this observation by Andrew Connors. He said, you do not step out of a boat in the middle of a storm. You batten down the hatches, you put your life jacket on, you hunker down in the belly of the boat, and you pray the waves do not get any bigger and the wind's not any stronger. The safest way to avoid getting hurt seems to be to stay in the boat. 92% of the disciples did exactly that in this story. Now, I don't blame the other 11 for fear, do you? I would have been afraid too. And if I honestly try to put myself in this story, I'm probably more like the 11 than I am Peter. I would be the one who failed privately. But it's not fear that distinguishes Peter from the others. It's allowing fear to get in the way of listening to Jesus. You know what I've discovered about life? It's not the unknown that's most frightening. It's leaving the known. It's leaving what we're comfortable with, what we're familiar with. It's going to Jesus. It's not going to Jesus that scared him. It's stepping out of the security of that boat. And Peter's the only one who realized that it's better to be with Jesus without a boat than to be in a boat without Jesus. So here's the dilemma. Fear or faith. Are we going to have fear or are we going to have faith? What we focus on in life is either going to feed our fear or it's going to feed our faith. And there really is no middle ground in that. Which brings up an important aspect to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To commit to following Jesus means to commit to the reality of the constant recurrence of fear. Because growth means new territory. Growth means getting out of the boat. Growth means going to places where we've never been. And every time you do that, you experience fear. So discipleship is a choice between comfort and fear. To be a disciple means to renounce or move against my comfort and security in order to get out of the boat. So again, remember, as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he actually walked on water. When he looked away, that's when he sank. Same principle applies to our life. In fact, it's an older quote, but it's a great one by F.B. Meyer. Unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God. But faith puts God between us and our circumstances. Do you ever do this? It happens all the time. If I put my circumstance between me and God in my relationship, I promise you I will feed my fear. Because my circumstance is bigger than God. But if I put God between me and my circumstance to know that he is the lens through which I will see life, that he is the buffer between me and my circumstances, that God is the one who is my strength and ability to overcome what lies in my circumstances, that will feed my faith. 
So this miracle had an amazing result for the disciples. They, they had been incapable of seeing who Jesus was before. And now finally they say Jesus is truly God's son. Now God had already said that at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. The demons had said that in the uh, Gadarean demoniac when they were healed and they, they were taken out of the they were taken out of the demon possessed man. They said, "Surely this is the Son of God." This is the first time in the Gospels that all the disciples finally get it who they're following. This is Jesus, the unique Son of God. Jesus come, God come in the flesh. So that's really the central message to the text. But there's some, if you will, residuals in this text that are really worth exploring. And I'm going to talk to you about moving against fear. So there's a great book. It was written by John Ortberg. It's an older book now. It's called, If You Want to Walk on Water, you got to Get Out of the Boat. I'll confess I got some great illustrations out of that book, but these next six main principles are principles I also got out of the book. So I want to give credit where credit is due. Number one, there's always a calling. Let me ask you, when Peter recognized that it was Jesus coming to them in the storm, why didn't he just dive out of the boat and go to Jesus? Because this is not about risk-taking. You need to understand that there's a difference between a genuine call of God, an authentic call of God, and a foolish impulse on my part. You see, Jesus isn't looking for bungee-jumping, hang-gliding, tornado-chasing, adrenaline junkies. That's not what he's into. Peter is not walking on the water because that adds excitement to his life. You see, before Peter gets out of a perfectly good boat, he wants to know that Jesus thinks this is a good idea too. Now, I personally believe that God has placed within all of us this craving, this desire to do more than just sit in the boat. You were made for more than just avoiding failure. So here's my question, what's your boat? Because your boat is whatever it is in your life that pulls you away from 100% devotion to God and his kingdom purposes. Now, that could be a relationship. It could be your career, it could be an addiction or a habit you know doesn't please God. But for most Americans, it's comfort. You know, last week I mentioned everybody has a comfort zone. We have a, a temperature at which we're most comfortable. We, we have a, a set of circumstances around which we feel most at ease. There's a certain group of people that we love and enjoy being around. And all it takes is to move out of that comfort zone and we start feeling a little anxious and we'll do practically anything to get back into that comfort zone. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but what you need to understand is comfort zone living can lead to complacent living. Because like I told you last week, your faith doesn't grow in a comfort zone because you're never challenged in your comfort zone. You're not asked, you're not, you're not made to rub shoulders with people who are unlike you who might challenge the way you think or ideas or beliefs that you have. Comfort zone living is not a good place to be. And it's not so much comfortable as it is familiar, isn't it? I mean, it's familiar to us. It's what we know. And we know we can survive in the familiar. You know, in the air conditioning trade, there's a comfort zone, and it's typically around 72 degrees because that's the temperature at which you don't need heat or cooling. But, you know, they have another name for the comfort zone in the air conditioner trade. You know what it is? The dead zone. The dead zone. And the thing is, is the longer you live in the comfort zone, the more the sense of deadness grows. It's what Jesus was talking about in the letter to the seven churches when he says to the church in Laodicea, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're just lukewarm, and I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So years ago, I was reading this book. It was a New York Times bestseller. 
written by John Roger and Peter McWilliams. It's called Life 101. It was a great book. It had a lot of great anecdotes. But it had an amazing definition of a comfort zone I've never forgotten. I want to share it with you right now. You can imagine the comfort zone as a circle. Inside the circle are those things we feel comfortable doing. Outside is everything else. The wall of the circle is not, alas, a wall of protection. It's a wall of fear, a wall of limitation. The illusion is that the wall keeps us from bad things and keeps bad things from us. In reality, the bad things get in just fine, perhaps you've noticed. In reality, too, the wall often prevents us from getting what we want. The boundary around our comfort zone is a wall of fear. It's a wall of limitation. So what's your boat? John Ortberg said this, your boat is whatever represents your safety and security to you apart from God himself. Your boat is whatever you're tempted to put your trust in, especially when life gets stormy. So in what ways, and I mean this for me as much as I mean it for you, in what ways are we shrinking back from courageously and boldly following Jesus? Because getting out of the boat may be the hardest thing that many of us ever do. But remember this, there's always fear. So God has this Amazing habit of always asking us to do scary things, right? I mean, he's, he's just always asking us to do things that move us out of our comfort zone, that scare us, that petrify us half to death. The truth about water walking is this, the fear never goes away, which is actually good news, which means you don't have to make the fear go away because that's not what faith is anyway. Faith is moving ahead in spite of your fear. I don't think any of us in this room is ever going to be delivered once and for all for, from fear. I think it's to happen. I think it's going to be a part of the reality of our life. There's always fear. You know, a lot of us say, well, there's nothing more important than God. Or we quote, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We have amazing words we sing in our worship. But we sing these in the comfort and security of our boat. And oftentimes, we condemn the person who gets there outside of the boat, and then they fail in their faith, and we just say, oh, look at them. You know, there's such a failure. And all the while they're sinking to the bottom of the sea, we fail to realize they still had greater faith than us because they got out of the boat. You know, I, I really, I love Helen Keller. She said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. The, the hockey legend Wayne Gretzky, the great one as they called him, he said, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. And Mark Twain said something similar. He said, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did. You know, I don't know about you, but I would rather fail. I really sincerely would rather fail in attempting something great for God than to succeed at mediocrity. I, I really want, I want my life at the end to have mattered. And I want to be involved in the things God is doing. And there's always reassurance. You know, one of the great things I love about Scripture is God understands we're fearful creatures. In fact, he says 366 times in the pages of God's Word, don't be afraid, fear not. That's one for every day of the year, as well as one to cover leap years, too. I mean, everything is covered. There's no reason to be afraid. God says don't be afraid. So God speaks to our fear because it's a daily struggle. I really don't admire people who say they're fearless. Because, like I say, having faith is not about being fearless. It's about trusting God even when you're afraid. Hudson Taylor said it so great. He was a great faith missionary. He said, all God's giants have been weak people who did great things for God because they counted on his being with them. Friends, it's not about you. It's not about your power. It's not about your resources. It's not about your charm. It's not about your personality. It's not about your, uh, your giftedness. It's about Jesus. And then there's always a decision. 
Here's the deal. You're going to make this decision every day of your life to either get out of the boat or stay in the boat. And what I've learned about that choice is this. Either choice tends to grow into a habit. If you make a choice to get out of the boat, to move against your fears, to do the thing, to get out of your comfort zone, beyond that wall of limitation, if you do that on a regular basis, what you're going to find, it gets easier the next time to step out of the boat. And if you don't, if you choose to stay in the boat, what happens is that voice that compels you to get out of the boat that says, join God in the adventure that he's doing today, that voice gets a little quieter and quieter to the point that you will no longer hear it anymore in your life. So then the last principle is this, there's always a changed life. You know, I used to say this, I used to say vision is a clear, compelling, magnetic image of a preferable future. And I said that because I heard somebody else say it and I thought it sounded really, really good. <laughs> but because I've been a leader for so long now, I realized the clear part, <laughs> the really clear preferred image of this future, uh, that's very seldom the case. You know, I hear leaders all the time tell their people highly specific things that they believe that God is calling on them to do. And I'd never want to call them a liar. But sometimes I wonder how much of that is ego and how much of that is God. Because when I look at the pages of God's word and I see how God actually leads his people, I see God telling Abraham, Abraham, it's time to move. But he doesn't tell him where. Now, if I was Abraham, I'd probably have a few questions, you know, like, uh, where am I going? And God says, I'll let you know. Well, how long is it going to take? I'll let you know. Well, how am I even going to know when I get there? I'll let you know. I mean, God just doesn't give specificity. He points a direction. I look in the New Testament. I look at, at Paul, and he's on the missionary journey, and he's wondering, where am I to go next? He tries to go north. He tries to go south. He tries to go east. tries to go wet. He's stymied. He doesn't know which way to go until finally he gets a vision from God, come over to Macedonia. Now, when I read those things, I realize that vision is more like a compass and less like a map. That God has this way of pointing us in the right direction. And when we start moving in that direction, God gives us the light we need for the next step. Always love the verse in the Psalms that says, your word is a light to my path and a lamp to my feet. Remember that verse? Do you know the word light in that verse means a small light like a candlelight? And what that means is God's word and God's leadership in life is enough light to take the next right step. That's what you get. You get enough light to take the next right step. And if I will have courage and I will move against my fear and take that next right step, then God will give me light for the next step. And that's the way God leads. He leads incrementally. He leaves us one step at a time. Now, I say all that to say, you know, we're in this series because we're just at a time of, of really momentous change and a, a glorious new future for Spring Creek. And I got to tell you, as your leader, I don't know all the changes we may face in the coming months as the church grows. I don't even know how long God might keep me as your pastor. And I don't say that to unnerve anybody in this room, and I don't say that because I have any plans of going anywhere, because I don't. All I know is this. We can trust an unknown future to a known God. We can. We can trust that God's got Spring Creek where he wants it to be. What we have to do is match his pace. We got to stay in lockstep with the Spirit. I know the comfort and the security of the familiar. I never want to be a worshiper of my own preferences. So we're being challenged 
What does it mean for the church to grow younger? And we've been intentional over the last couple of years to select a younger staff, a, a staff that really is more in tune with the, the, the rising needs of a new generation. It doesn't mean we're putting old people out the pasture. It doesn't mean that your needs don't count if you're old like me. That doesn't mean anything. But it means that we adapt, we change, we get out of our comfort zone. You know, one of the things that's marked this church from the beginning days is special music and a lot of blues and a lot of rock and stuff like that. Because that is me. That's me through and through. And that's going to be me till I die. But you know what? The young people say, you know, churches don't do these special music anymore. And they don't do secular songs in, in worship anymore. And pastor, that's just not it anymore. I said, okay, it doesn't have to be about me. That's cool. They said, well, well you know, we don't even use the word cool anymore. So, I mean, I'm just getting, I'm getting... I'm getting corrected right and left. But I, what I want, what I want for this church, I don't want to worship my preference for the rest of my life. I don't want Spring Creek to be a single generation church. I want this to be a church that continues to be a beacon on a hill in this city because I'll tell you what, every single generation needs the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Every single generation needs to know that there's a church on Beltline Road that loves Jesus and loves people and wants to make a difference in their life. And it doesn't matter what they're battling with. It doesn't matter if their marriage is coming unraveled. It doesn't matter if they're coming out of addiction. It doesn't matter if they're coming out of prison. It doesn't matter if they're at the top of their game professionally. But inside, their personal life is a hell. They can find a place here that believes that God meets us and heals us and loves us. And we want to give that message to the world. So let's say amen, somebody, okay? <laughs> Father, thanks so much. Thanks so much for this place. Thank you, God, that you are at work in this place. It is our decision for you to lead our leadership. God, it's our decision to be in lockstep with your spirit. It's our decision today, God, to step out of the comfort and security of our boat, our tradition, our preference, and to say we want to be out there on the waves with Jesus because I would rather attempt something great for you than to fail at being mediocre. So, God, I pray that you would continue to keep your hand upon this church. I can pray, God, that you'll continue to draw people to yourself. And I pray, God, this would be a church that would always go after the people nobody wants so that we end up with a church everybody wants because we see what God can do in every single life because we believe in the transformational work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for this place. Thank you that you let me be a part of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yeah.